BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm very excited about the guests we have today. Josh Davis, a Columbia PhD, who's currently the Director of Research for the Neuro Leadership Institute, a neuro coach, and a master practitioner of NLP. Josh is the author of the recent book, Two Awesome Hours, where he shares science-based strategies to get your most important work done. With that, let's welcome Josh to the show. Thanks so much for having me here. It's really nice to be on the show. And we're super excited to have you. Do you want to kind of tell readers or give them just a little bit of a, a kind of an introduction to what Two Awesome Hours is about and what, uh, you know, your story and your background? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. So, you know, where this came from was that uh, I was realizing something that we were all realizing, but uh, I just, I guess, was feeling compelled to see what I could do about it. You know, I was, I, I was working all the time. My wife was working all the time. My friends were working all the time. And, you know, good people working hard, trying to get a lot of stuff done, really contributing to their jobs and and yet feeling bad at the end of the day and feeling like we hadn't done enough and this sort of constant sense of overwhelm. There's no way to kind of catch up. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I when I saw that, I guess I really came to a point where I just was just thinking that's that's not right. That's not how to live a life. That's um um, that's not what I want for myself and for others. I want to, you know, want to create a, more of a culture if I can, where we have some of that balance. Where when we put in that kind of hard work, we can say, "Yeah, I accomplished something," and and leave it alone and and not feel that sense of there's this constant overwhelm. And of course, it's only continuing. Also, it's only getting worse as we, you know, as we're so accessible. We're going to be wearing our technology, I'm sure, within you know the year and uh, or maybe longer. Who knows? <laughs> but 
but we're you know the, it's it'll be implanted i who knows where it's going but it's but we're just going to be more and more accessible and with that in, we have increased social pressures and social obligations to get back to people because most of us are caring thoughtful people and do want to help one another out and get back quickly so so there's every reason to think it'll increase and so so you know what i wanted to find out is is there some way that we can start to get back some of this uh, work-life balance, some of this self-compassion. And the, the key that kind of launched the whole book idea was, was sort of identifying this idea that, that uh, you know, typically what we do when we get overwhelmed is we just think, all right, I have to work every minute. I need to stay on task as much as possible. I have to work every hour. There's just so much work. How, am I gonna, how else am I going to do it? And it's logical but it's actually based on a model that of, of how a computer works, not how a human being works. A computer, you get the same output every time you run it. So you should just run it as often as you can. Uh, you know, always keep it on, and you'll get more done. But for a human being, a biologically-based system, you're not going to get nearly the same output every time. But you can, un- quite unlike a computer, you can do remarkable and unexpected things you can be extremely effective for a very brief period of time, one, two, three hours. Now, I might be able to figure out uh, how to map out uh, you know, a chapter of my book. Um, you, know, you might be able to, to figure out you know, just the right marketing strategy for a new podcast, you know, solve that problem of how you're going to have just the right team for the, the product line that's going forward. The big important stuff, the stuff that can carry you for the rest of the week. And then we can have, I don't know about you, I can have two or three days where I'm kind of worthless. <laughs> I'm not yeah, getting oh, that absolutely. much there. So then what I started wondering was, can we set up the conditions for those brief periods of being highly effective? If that's what happens naturally, then there must be something that leads to it. And what I started to learn as I dug into the psychology and the neuroscience research, because that's my background, was that there are things we can do to set it up and that those, those things that we can do to set it up are often the very same things that lead to greater work-life balance. That we can, really, we, we can really leverage this idea of being highly effective for short periods of time. And it doesn't mean we're not going to work the rest of the time. It means we, we've recognized what really matters, set up the conditions to be highly effective for that, and then do the unimportant work at the other times when we're not so effective. And that's the core, that's kind of the core message of the book. And then it's specific strategies uh, based on the science about how we set up those conditions. And I love the distinction that you make between, or, or I guess using the word effectiveness. And that's something that I'm, I'm really passionate about is kind of the difference between efficiency and effectiveness, which I'm sure you're familiar with that distinction. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a critical distinction that you know, efficiency is about uh, doing as much as we can in a short time. And so in some sense, you know, I suppose, yes, that's what when we're highly effective, we're getting a lot done in a short period of time. But the, 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 base, the bigger idea sort of the, or the idea, the undercurrent when we're talking about efficiency is that we're just trying to optimize the schedule, the calendar, pack things in. And it doesn't take into account how well the system is operating you know, how effective we are. But that is a huge variable for a human being. Um, and, you know, it, it's such a big variable, in fact, that we probably, this is my hunch, um, you know, I don't yet have data to back this up, but this is my hunch, that we probably 
uh, actually get less out of ourselves when we try to work around the clock. And it's not just uh, so not just diminishing returns, but we probably actually get less useful work done. Is my guess when we just try to keep working all the time. I feel like I heard about a study, uh, and I guess I'd have to go and do some research. But I feel like I remember hearing something that people who work more than forty hours a week they're actually less productive. Um, that that's exactly what I'm what I'm suggesting. It would follow quite naturally based on on what I've been learning and writing about in the book. So, well, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned before, and I, and I love the comparison of sort of humans versus computers, because one of the things we've talked about in an earlier podcast is the idea of the biological limits of the human mind and, you know, sort of the, the hard constraints that evolution in biology have created for um, the way that we think and the way that our mind works. Um, cool. What do you... You know, what do you tell to the busy executive or the friend of yours? Uh, you know, I mean, I have people like this in my life who uh, who say everything's important. And I, and I, you know, I've read four hour work week and I've read two awesome hours. And, and you know, I tell people, I'm like, hey, you got to you got to refocus. You got to trim down what you're doing. You got to prioritize. And, you know, they, they have this kind of view that everything is a priority and they just this huge sense of overwhelm. How, what would you say or how would you help people who maybe they've kind of understood this, but they have some colleagues or friends or employees who are struggling with this uh, distinction or kind of struggling to make the leap to really understanding this? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I think can be helpful. One is that um, one thing that I've had to, you know, I've had the opportunity to enjoy uh, is that um, when I share with people scientific findings, then it's very different than just hearing advice because while advice, I might be giving the exact same advice and a couple of times in the book, you'll see things that you've already heard. I might be giving the exact same advice at times as someone else, but when you hear advice, there's always the reasonable thing to wonder, which is, you know, did it just work for you? Or there's some context where it doesn't fit. Do you have to have the right personality? You know, is there something else that I don't know about it? But when you have the research and so you can understand when and why something might work, then it's very different. Then it's just more of an experience of, hey, here's how the brain works. Do you want to work with that or not? And so it's much easier for someone to feel like it's worthwhile to give it a chance, uh, much easier for someone to believe that there's something in it for them. Um, and, and that little shift can make a huge difference. So that's one thing that can definitely go, go a long way. A second piece I think that can be quite useful is um, uh, – you know, to uh, uh, help people start with just one of the strategies, which will kind of create the space for all of the others. That you know, everything on the on the schedule is there for a reason. It, it is important to someone, and it has some level of importance. So it's not like there's anything that if we just got rid of it, it would have no consequences. So I think it's worthwhile acknowledging that. However. There are only a handful of the things that are on the agenda that are really going to matter for advancing your career, helping the company succeed, um, making you feel like you're accomplishing something worthwhile. And one of the things that I'll encourage people to do is to take advantage of what uh, researchers will call psychological distance. Um, When we get some distance in time or in space um, or we imagine it pertains to someone else uh, or isn't that likely – you know that that's that's what they call what we call uh, psychological distance. 
when you have psychological distance, it's much easier to recognize, just more automatically, your brain goes there. It's much easier to recognize uh, the big picture, the abstract, uh, the desirable aspects of something. So when you've got a, you know, a weekend day, for example, great to just have, you know, a lot of people, you know, if you manage to get away from work, probably don't want to think about work too much. But I, I would recommend just 10 minutes of asking the question, when you are away from work, you know, maybe, uh, you know, relatively early in the day on a weekend day, you've got some good mental energy, what actually matters? And, you know, when I ask people that question, when they've got some psychological distance, it's usually not that challenging of a question. If you ask me, for example, I should be writing papers, I should be writing books, and I should be um, presenting. You know, these are, it's, it's a short list of things that are really going to matter, that, that are going to, you know, move things forward um, in my career, with companies that I, you know, that I, that I work for, with, uh, um, you know, that are going to matter a lot to me. And for any job, there's, you know, we, we can identify those things much more easily with a little bit of, di- of distance. The trick then is how do we actually remember to focus on those things when we need to? And that's strategy one in the book is to recognize your decision points. They don't come that often in a day. Most of the time in the day, we're on autopilot. We're, you know, it's not that you're not conscious, but you're, you're not consciously monitoring and choosing what to do. Right now, we're in interview mode. You and I are pretty much focused on what we're going to say to each other. We're not, in, we're not thinking about all of the other things in our day and, and what our options are for tasks to do. Um, but as soon as the interview ends, we've got a decision point. You know, unless you have something scheduled and you have no options, uh, we've got a decision point. There's a crossroads. What do I do? And it's at that moment that we become highly aware, self-aware, aware of how uncomfortable we are that we're not doing anything productive, aware of time passing. It only lasts for a, a couple of minutes, but it feels like an eternity, and it can be uncomfortable, and we can have the urge to just grab at whatever's right in front of us because, of course, there's some importance to everything. But that's the moment to recognize. So right before a task, right after a task, or right after you've been interrupted, um, you know, that one's a hard one to learn because we usually hate interruptions. But right after you've been interrupted, you've created this crossroads. You've got to decide much more aware than you are when you're on autopilot. You can't just choose to snap out of autopilot. But when you do get one of these decision points, you've got to take it because that's the moment in the day when you can actually decide what task to work on, when you're capable of remembering what's important as opposed to what's urgent. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a critical – I think that's a really important point which is that having the ability to monitor your own thoughts and have even a moment of kind of awareness of, hey, this is a decision point. This is a time when I can change direction. This is a time where I can step out of this pattern and refocus on what's really important. And one of the tools that's helped me personally be able to do that more frequently is meditation. And I know you talk about that in the book. Is that something that you use or are there other tools and strategies that people may be able to implement to kind of recognize decision points more frequently. Yeah, so, so you're exactly right. It's that moment of being able to catch yourself. And, uh, you know, those moments, they don't come around all that often in the day. One of the things that, um, for example, mindfulness-based uh, meditation has been shown to be helpful with is to help people catch those moments, um, you know, to, or create a moment of actually checking in with yourself and saying, wait a second, am I you know, doing the right thing because, because you can be more aware of uh, how you're feeling and what you're thinking 
um, in that moment. So was, it, there's every reason to think that that kind of a practice would help. Um, I also don't think that it's necessary to have that kind of a practice to be to learn to take advantage of these moments. That there are other things that we can do. If you're someone who isn't, uh, you know, doesn't do that a lot of meditation of that sort. Uh, there's some great simple planning ahead that we can do. If, if you plan ahead and you, you put in what's called a, an implementation intention, often just described as an if-then plan, um, the, you can be more likely to actually capture the decision point when it comes. So, for example, I can think about my calendar, and I know that I don't know exactly what's coming um, next week. Some new things will be scheduled, I'm sure, and some things will be canceled. However, I do know that there are going to be some days when I arrive at the office. There's going to be some days when I um, have phone calls and then I hang up the phone. Uh, There's going to be some days when I have meetings with a group of people. There's going to be some days when I'm more likely to be interrupted and other days less likely to be interrupted. I can plan ahead and say, you know, when a meeting ends, I'm likely to be at one of those crossroads. And so I'm going to plan for that. You know, if a meeting ends, rather than just pulling out my phone and looking at the list to see, oh, you know, oh, yeah, what was what were all the things I'm supposed to do? What's my name again? You know, that that moment of disorientation. Uh, Instead, I'm going to plan ahead and visualize myself actually taking a moment to until my head is clear enough that I can remember what actually matters and why I do the job. And, you know, what's in it for me here? What you know, what's the point of this work? At that point, and it doesn't need to take more than a minute, could take two, maybe three minutes. Um, you know, when we indulge in these things, it's not going to be a huge amount of the, uh, of the time of our day, but it can make a huge difference in choosing the right thing to do. Then I'm going to pull up my calendar and look at the list of things. It's going to be much easier for me to sort, having done that thinking, because time doesn't get wasted when we're taking those moments of actually deciding, time gets wasted when we choose the wrong task. If you choose the wrong task and get going on it, you could waste an hour, an hour and a half, you know, no time. That's where you end up with that feeling of the whole afternoon, you know, where did it go? Yeah, I think that's that's a critically important distinction, which is that time isn't wasted when you have a moment of decision. Time is wasted when you make the wrong decision or when you just on autopilot go and do something that's not you know, it might be an efficient use of your time, but it's not an effective use of your time. Exactly. So changing gears a little bit, um, one of the things in your book, you mentioned Ben Franklin as an example of somebody who was tremendously effective, but at the same time really cherished his downtime and, you know, lived a very full and rich life. Why did you choose him as an example? And tell me a little bit of how that kind of plays into the idea of, of what the message of two awesome hours. Yeah, Ben Franklin. I was so happy to come across that example because, I mean, who's known as being, you know, the example of productivity like Ben Franklin? You know, he's he's around the world. He's known as well. And, um, you know, to be honest, I, I want to influence people around the world. Uh, and so so some character that's known around the world as as a, a, you know, a paradigm example of productivity. And when you look at his autobiography. I mean, he's gone to great lengths, actually, to spell out his approaches. Uh, you find, you do find all of the things that he did to work on his career as a printer, which is how he made his fortune. But you also find um, all of this information about his, you know, this schedule that he really tried to keep to on a regular basis that included a two-hour lunch. 
you know, where he would give himself time to read books and take care of his affairs that had music and conversation and, and fun in the evening. He had all kinds of hobbies that one of his hobbies led was a part of a book group that eventually led to everybody sharing their books. And now we've got the great library. You know, this wasn't these these weren't things that he was doing as part of his printing empire. He was doing things on the side, an inventor, the you know, the stove and his scientific work with electricity. You know, these were things that he did as hobbies, I would say. These were things that he did out of fun. He also spent a lot of time flirting and being, you know, joking around, right? So this is a guy who, you know, you're looking at this and it's so tempting to say, well, you know, I have to choose. I have to choose. Do I want to be the guy who's working all the time around the clock, um, you know, to, to get all my work done? Or do I want to be the guy who actually has some work-life balance? But what Ben Franklin helps to show is that it's a false choice. It's a, it's a mistaken belief to actually see it as a choice because those things that we can do to take care of ourselves actually make us more effective when we're working. I think that, yeah, I completely agree with that. And actually, uh, another example that I personally really like is Warren Buffett. You know, I mean, he's, I think he's quoted as saying that uh, he's, he basically spends almost all of his time just sitting in his office reading. Is that right? Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, if you look at how tremendously successful he's been, uh, he, he spends, and Charlie Munger, his business partner as well, they, they spend the vast majority of their time essentially reading and just kind of cultivating their minds. But I, I love the, the, the word false choice because I think that's a perfect description of how people kind of fall into this trap of I need to cram every, you know, every minute and every hour and I have to answer that extra email and you know, be super productive when the reality is, and as, you know, as you've shown and the research shows, often it's taking that downtime and really taking you know, the time to recharge and kind of pull your, your conscious mind away from some of the work when you really end up producing the most and doing the best work. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire. 
because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Mm-hmm. And this is on a you know the short term basis and a longer term basis. So just a few minutes of downtime when you find your mind drifting, for example, there's there's uh, fantastic research about what happens in those minutes uh, when our minds are drifting, as well as the longer term downtime. What happens when you actually take a break and uh, you know um, have a half hour without just taking in lots of information or get some exercise, you know, or get a chance to have a full night's sleep. So the short and the long term of it, both have been shown to be quite effective. So you actually, that kind of segues, you mentioned in the book, um, fighting distractions, and you have some pretty counterintuitive advice to sort of combat when your mind wanders and drifts. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So this is probably the most counterintuitive thing in the book. You know, you, uh, you never hear, you never hear uh, a, um, a report card for a kid that, that uh, says, you know, Johnny's really great in class, but he needs to daydream more, right? That's, I mean, it's so antithetical to what we are encouraged throughout our lives. That daydreaming, mind-wandering is, is a bad thing. It's something to scold ourselves for. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Let me know if this has ever happened to you, uh, that you've been working hard on something, and after 15, 20, or 20 minutes, your mind starts drifting. And what do you do? You yell at yourself. You try to beat yourself up to stay on task. You know, what's wrong with you? Stay focused. Oh, absolutely. That kind of approach, right? And, you know, I've done that, too. I've, I, I tried that approach for decades. Uh, most people I know have tried that for many, many years. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that, we tried that experiment and it failed. <laughs> you know, d- despite yelling at ourselves every time, we still do it. And it's because our attention systems are working quite well. When our minds drift after 15 to 20 minutes, that's because our attention systems are doing what they're supposed to do. They're not meant to keep us focused, they're meant to pick up on what's changing. So they're meant to pick up on what potentially could be threatening or exciting or new or interesting or worthwhile. That's what they're for. If, if we didn't have the ability to detect changing things in our environment, we'd just be sitting ducks. So, you know, that's what we have these systems for. So after a little while, our minds wander, they drift. We should expect that. Now, if we just try to yell at ourselves, clear, clearly that hasn't worked. But an interesting thing happens then if we try some of the alternatives. So basically, I I think the other two alternatives are these. One is that you go and do something worthwhile or fun, like you check your email or you see who liked your post on Facebook or something like that. You read the news, check up on the sports page, you know, sports listings, whatever it is. You know, there's uh, uh, many different ways that we might do that. All of those, though, involve tracking a lot of new information. And there's lots of little exciting things that can grab our attention, positive or negative, but that'll just keep us in a loop. So easy to get sucked in on autopilot and get lost yep. for a half hour or more. Easily, yeah. I mean, I think everybody's had the experience of getting, you know, you click one article and 30 minutes later, you're like, what have I been doing? 
Uh-huh, exactly, exactly. But that's not the only option we have. You know, compared to that option, it makes a little bit of sense to just yell at yourself, to try to do anything to stay on task, even if it's not actually working. You know, but there's another option, which is actually just to let your mind wander for a few minutes. What happens when our minds wander? Uh, research has shown three or four different kinds of effects, um, one of which is that we integrate the neural circuitry that has to do with executive function, staying focused on a goal, and the neural circuitry that has to do with thinking about ourselves and thinking about our social interactions. Usually it's one or the other neural network that's, that's more active. But when we're mind-wandering, meaning when our minds are just drifting, not thinking about whatever it was we were doing before, then there's integration between these networks. They're active at the same time. So we can find the ways that our goals and our social lives can be linked up together, which is important because it's a single human being doing both. There's also something called creative incubation. If you've been working on a creative puzzle, a creative challenge, you know, how am I going to work out this new brand issue? But also it could be something in a you know, management space, like how am I going to choose the right team for a, for a project? In that case, you're working on something creative. Then when your mind wanders and then you come back to the challenge, people have been shown to come up with more creative ideas and ideas that are more creative. So both rated more creative and also more of them. There's also, yes, yeah, that's, that's fascinating because that phenomenon, creative incubation, I've never heard the term, but I'm, I'm intimately familiar with the idea, which is essentially, you know, you're, you're working on a problem and you step away or you get distracted or you go have lunch and you come back to it and suddenly you kind of immediately solve it, you know, and, and your subconscious has essentially sort of solved the problem for you when you stepped away from it consciously or when you refocus on something else. Exactly. There's background processing happening. There's still things happening uh, in your non-conscious mind. And there's lots of uh, neural activity going on associated with recognizing patterns and connecting the things together that we can block. We can get in the way of that when we're tracking new information. So to, to most effectively mind wander, actually, what you want to do is to do something that will distract you from what you were thinking about, but that doesn't require you to track new information because that'll block the mind wandering. So that's also been shown in research. So we can, we can learn how to effectively mind wander, how to be good at mind wandering. So some things that'll do that well are, for example, staring out the window and just watching the people go by or looking at some art on the wall. You know, it's, it's things that hold some interest but don't require you to track information. And this is my favorite part of it. There's a built-in endpoint. It gets boring. So after a few minutes, you're going to drift back. So if your mind wants to wander, the thing to do is to let it wander, facilitate that wandering maybe even by going and staring out the window, right? taking that moment. Right? After a few minutes, you're likely to actually be, drift back. And when you do, you're going to be more effective at the work you're doing and you're going to be back far quicker than any other method uh, that you've got. So you'll be back to work quicker and you'll be more effective when you do if you let your mind wander. So that's why it's so counterintuitive because really in that moment, what we need to do is have a little self-compassion and recognize my mind is wandering for a reason. I'm going to let it and just wait until I'm back because that turns out to be the fastest way to get back in a really useful way. There's a couple of other things we can go into about what mind-wandering enables or, or uh, those two examples may be enough for now. Yeah, I think let's I want to I want to cover a few other topics as well, but I think I mean I think that's an incredibly important idea and I'm 
I'm definitely going to do some more digging on the on the creative incubation topic. I'm glad now that I have kind of the buzzword for for that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make people more creative in general. It makes them more creative about what they were trying to solve right before the mind wandering. It's fascinating. One of the other topics that I was interested in in talking about, uh, you mentioned a number of times in the book, working memory and how important that is. And I was curious, one, if you could talk kind of a little bit about what, you know, why working memory is so important. And two, what are some ways that people can sort of train or improve their working memory? Mm. So working memory is a term for uh, what we are able to hold consciously in mind at any one time. So those things, you know, it's memory in the sense that, you know, we're actually retaining the information, but, you know, it's a very short-term kind of thing. It's, it's what we're working with in the moment. Um, so a lot of uh, research on that, that pertains to productivity um, will have as a dependent measure how, uh, how it affects working memory. Um, sometimes it'll influ- the, the dependent measure will be concentration. Sometimes it'll be attention. Sometimes it'll be... Um, you know, emotional consequences, uh, effects on anxiety. Um, you know, there's sometimes it's a, a general perceived sense of a, being able to to feel refreshed and be present, feel focused. But so, working memory is definitely part of that. It's an important part of of what researchers will call the executive functions, um, the functions that we really rely on our uniquely human um, brain uh, parts of our brains for. Uh, that are, are you know have a lot to do with the, the the information that we're consciously aware of in the moment. Now, there's clearly, as we were just talking about with mind wandering, lots of important stuff that happens in the background, non conscious. But um, you know, your your working memory, um, the more that you're able to hold in mind and kind of work with in the moment, well, the you know the the more flexible you can be in, in the way that you solve problems. So it, it def- definitely can be helpful. There are debates about whether a person can really change their working memory capacity, but what we can do is, is make it easier for us, for ourselves to really rely on, to use our working memory. So if I'm highly distracted by being overly anxious by something, then that's going to make it hard. That's going to make it harder for me to, you know, hold in mind those things that I need to hold in mind. And something that will really help me become less anxious is a little bit of exercise, one of the more reliable things we have for it. Um, Also, uh, you know, it's been shown that certain environmental factors like um, bright lights, especially lights that are more on the cool end of the spectrum, have some of the blue in them, make it easier for people to to do some of these uh, executive functions, um, like like making use of their working memory. Another thing that's quite helpful for that, and this one also, similar to the anxiety example I was giving, has a lot to do with sort of competing input, um, is sound. That when, it's, when there's silence, it's much easier to do tasks that require working memory. When there's a little bit of noise in the background, sometimes that's been shown to be helpful with very creative kinds of tasks, probably. Probably very, you know, it probably doesn't really apply to writing. I'd like to see research that specifically looks at that, just because that's so verbal, um, and so that should interfere with sound. But we have, you know, some creative tasks when it primes the concept of being free from constraints. Then a little bit of noise can, has been shown to help. But for the most part, 
tasks that are going to require our executive functions and rely on working memory, for example, uh, are going to be a lot harder for us to do when there's noise in the background. And that's noise of any kind, but the absolute hardest thing to work around is speech. And that was one of the most surprising findings for me when uh, when I read the book was the idea, you know, I love kind of put on some background music. And I mean, it's sad, but you can't argue with the research that that even even a little bit of background music actually negatively impacts your productivity. Yeah, it, it is. It is sad. Uh, I felt the same way. And also, you know, I love coffee shops. But the truth is, I, you know, the research would suggest and as I look at it, um, I guess my experience does seem to follow that too, that I'm, I am less productive there with all that background noise. Now, one thing I will say, though, is that we don't need to be at our best all the time, and we can't be at our best all the time. So, you know, when you've got that work that's really important, you've decided this is a project I need to nail. I've got a pitch to the CEO, right? I really want to nail this. Well, when you're working on that, that would be an ideal time to give yourself a quiet space with good lighting, you know, and to maybe come to it after a little exercise or at least not come to it right after doing something else that really depleted you, you know, then you're likely to be highly effective. And you don't need to be at your absolute best for everything. There's some things that you can do where you're just doing an initial draft of some thoughts and you know you're going to clean it up the next day. Or, you know, you're going through some paperwork, some reimbursements or, you know, something that you need to file that doesn't really need your attention. You've done it a hundred times, right? Sure, put on some music. You will work more slowly, and you're not going to pay as, as much attention to detail, but that won't matter in that case. You might enjoy it a little bit more. So, you know, it doesn't mean we have to never work with music on in the background, but just realize that for those periods, for those two awesome hours, then we want silence. So one of the kind of a related question that I had about working memory, and you, you know, you may not have an answer to this because this is a little bit outside the scope of the book, but I'm curious do brain games or brain training or anything like that, you know, do, do those things work? And do you think that those can help people improve working memory? Mm. Well, here's what I've heard um, that uh, I have. I know that there has been some research independent of the companies. Obviously, when the companies are doing the research, then, um, you know, they're motivated it, you know, to find things that will support them, which doesn't mean it's bad research. It's still good research. It's just that you also want to have research from independent sources. Uh, um, so, so some things that I've seen are that, first of all, the, the training, it, it does seem to make people better at the specific thing that they're working on. And, and we're talking very specific. So if, if someone's trying to, um, you know, learn to control their responses on uh, a Tetris-like game, you know, a game where you need to quickly move a piece so that it doesn't fall into the wrong spot on the screen, right? That that is, can definitely help them to improve the skill of, of visually moving pieces around and making sure that they don't fall into the wrong spot. Whether that's going to then generalize, though, is the piece that uh, um, is not yet showing up. And it may, um, but uh, at least one piece of research that I've seen was showing that uh, that 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 self control in one domain training that didn't necessarily uh, or didn't um, improve self control in a different domain. Even though we know there's a lot of overlap in the brain structures that are involved in self control, let's say for controlling your emotions and controlling what you eat, you know, nonetheless they must be different enough that 
the kind of brain training that can happen in these in these computer training things uh, didn't seem to carry over. Now that's just one domain that self control whether that would be the same for working memory uh, and attention and and various other things uh, like that remains to be seen. And so, you know, that's uh, it's an empirical question. It's a question for research, and I'm sure we're going to see research on that over the next five years. Speaking of emotions, you have a pretty interesting take on on how to handle and potentially use negative emotions to your advantage. Tell me a little bit more about that. Oh, yes. So, you know, Emotions are something that I think many people think of as something that just happens to them. Um, you know, that we're a victim of our emotions. It's like, oh, I wish I wasn't feeling sad today, or oh, I'm happy I'm feeling confident and feeling really good today, right? That it's just something that happens to us. But in fact, our emotions are adaptive, They're, they are things that we use, um, they have utility. The, they, they don't just exist in a vacuum. Our emotions are important parts of what motivates us. And our different emotions different, motivate us in different ways. So anger is unique among the negative emotions, and that's the only negative emotion that motivates us to move towards something. So anger is especially useful in a context where we need to move towards something that is unpleasant. You know, if, it's, if we're moving towards something pleasant, and, you know, let's say a pretty girl looks at you from across the across the room. Well, yeah, if you want to go up and approach her, there's no downside, presuming that you're single and et cetera. But you know, if you want to approach something that's unpleasant, um, you know that uh, maybe you need to um, raise prices, and your clientele, you know, a doctor, you know, a, a psychotherapist needs to raise prices periodically, and might fear that in doing so, that's going to drive some people away because they'll feel like there was a contract, you know, a verbal contract, an agreement and that, you know, about what the cost of the services were. But, you know, every couple of years, anybody needs to do this. And so having a little bit of anger around it, that might actually be helpful in motivating yourself to take that on say, you know what, you know, getting a little angry about the injustice of it. I deserve this. I give so much, you know, that actually can be motivating, can help the person. It's not the only way to motivate yourself, but recognizing that every emotion is there for a reason, it has value, it's adaptive in certain consequences, can actually help us look at our emotions differently. And rather than just trying to get rid of them, instead be aware of what your emotion is when you come to a decision point. You know, And like, hey, I'm a little angry right now. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and take on that price increase idea that I was dealing with. Or sadness. Um, is an emotion where, in fact, we tend to pay more attention to the detail. We tend to be more likely to actually think about somebody's arguments rather than just thinking about whether it's an attractive person giving the argument. So, you know, when you need to be really kind of uh, prudent, a little sadness can actually be useful. It might be helpful to get yourself a, into a mood where you're remembering something a little sad. Not the only way to do it. But it actually can be helpful in that context. Anxiety can help us focus. Now, it'll help us focus only on what we're anxious about, but it can help us focus. A little bit of anxiety is also very energizing. Um, A lot of energy, focused energy on particularly something that you want to avoid going wrong. Um, And that can be just the right thing at certain times. So these are not these are not necessarily bad things, you know. And when you know that about anxiety, then perhaps you find yourself with a little anxiety. Just taking a moment and saying to yourself, you know, hey, thanks, thanks, self, thanks, biological self, 
for helping to get me energized for this. You wouldn't be anxious unless there was something important to be energized about. You know, and it, maybe it feels a little negative, but that's, you know, that's, that's readiness. You know, and when we don't recognize that and we try to just get rid of the anxiety, then we can be anxious about feeling anxious. And that, you know, that, then it feels much more unpleasant. So with the negative emotions, you know, if we think about the utility of it, and on the positive side, the positive emotions, um, the, you know, when you're feeling good, you're more likely to collaborate effectively because you're more likely to see, uh, you're more likely to anticipate the collaboration going well. Um, when you're feeling good, you're more likely to come to creative solutions. You know, you're more likely to just uh, kind of let the small things go, look at the big picture. You know, does this seem like a generally likable person? And not be so critical of the specific arguments they might be making. There are times when that's exactly what you want. So emotions are a great thing to check in on when you're having a decision point. But there's also, you know, if you don't want to get that granular with your emotions, you can just think in general, am I strongly emotional right now? Therefore, is it going to be hard for me to concentrate? Maybe this is not the time for me to take on preparing for that CEO pitch. Maybe I should wait an hour, you know. Or did I just do something that made me strongly emotional, having a really tough conversation or getting some really tough feedback? Maybe now's the time to go do something like getting a little exercise to reset for the rest of the day. So we can really take into account our emotions at these decision points. I, I think that's a fantastic idea, and it's, it's such a useful tool to be able to harness those emotions instead of just you know, being upset about them or not coping with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can use them. We don't just have to wish them away. So one of the other topics that that you touch on in great detail in the book is the idea of mental fatigue, um, which I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, is is similar or the same as the concept of decision fatigue. Um, Tell me a little bit more about that and and how that impacts our decision-making process. Yeah, yeah. So I would consider decision fatigue a subset of mental fatigue. Okay. Uh, But that essentially we... We wear out, and in particular, we wear out our ability to control ourselves. Um, and decision making is a part of that. That you know, we we come, we made too many decisions. Each time you're making decision, you're essentially controlling yourself. You're trying to, you know, not make all the other decisions in favor of just one. So you know, I've got to decide not to eat the Danish in the morning. I've got to decide not to have the cookie lunch i've got to decide not to have the cake when you know somebody's got a birthday party at work and then finally at the end of the day just worn out with all this trying to keep myself from doing that and i have a bunch of ice cream there's there's the um you know we're, we're wearing that out as we go now when where the decision fatigue really comes in is that we're making decisions all the time and it doesn't matter how big or small they are we're still wearing out the same resource when I say wearing out, it's not that you couldn't keep going. If you were sufficiently motivated, you could keep going. I like to think of it like uh, running. If you just ran a half hour, you, you could keep going if you were sufficiently motivated, if someone was chasing you. But you know, you're probably not all that interested in doing it at that point. Similar thing happens with our, with our uh, mental fatigue or decision fatigue. After we've been doing it for a while, we just don't want to keep doing it. And there are consequences to this because we can't get through the day without making a lot of decisions. Oftentimes, though, this is the piece that, that I think is really helpful for people to, to capture, which is that 
just because something's important doesn't mean that we're making more decisions. You can wear out your decision-making abilities by making a lot of unimportant decisions or by making, important, by making decisions about things that are unimportant. So, for example, I like to pick on email because it's such a common experience. Yep. Um, a lot of emails are not that important. Some certainly are important, but a lot of emails are not that important. But still, we've got to make decisions about whether this is the right time to send it and whether we've included the right people and whether we've said something in an offensive way. You know, so many little decisions for each one. So at the end of an hour, an hour and a half of checking email, you can, be, you can pretty reliably expect that you've got some real decision fatigue. And it's going to be a lot harder to actually then do some really effective work. Yeah, you're less likely to be good at doing the effective work at that point than if you had a half-hour break between the email and the effective work. Or if you just did the email after the effective work. You know that because you won't be fatiguing yourself. And we, there's consequences in this uh, in legal arenas, medical arenas. I mean, there's been uh, you know w- when I say legal arenas, like judges, for example, by the end of the day, once you get to the afternoon, they've got decision fatigue. They've make, been making decisions all day long. So the kinds of decisions they hand down, they tend to re- resort to whatever their default is. If it's a more conservative judge, the conservative decision, a liberal judge, the liberal decision, whatever their default is. They've just sort of fatigued, essentially. And they're not necessarily aware. They're not necessarily aware of making a different decision. But they are making different decisions because it's just, it's just too hard to actually deliberate at that point. And I think, I think I've heard, and it may have been in the book, but of, of a study where they looked at judges kind of before each of their meal periods. And I think that they were more likely to sentence people to longer sentences uh, right before they ate. Or I guess right before they got a break, and it, I mean it's uh, it's a fascinating study, um, but it's 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 pretty shocking when you think about it. even the judicial system is impacted by something like that. Mm-hmm. The biological consequences uh, on decision making are, are what essentially what we're talking about. You know, what does it mean to have a human being making these decisions? Well, it means that we need to optimize the human decision making machine. You know, that we need to, to try to find ways to get judges to be in a really good mental space when they're making those decisions. And human beings, you know, are still the best at making complex, morally-based decisions. You know, we haven't created a computer that can do that better than a human. So what we can start to do, though, is to really focus on how do you, do you get a human being to be able to really give their best to the decisions that they're making. And part of it it is going to involve having um, you know, a shift in the way that they organize their days. That was research that I was not in my books. I must have found it elsewhere, but it's, it definitely fits. Um, and I think, I mean, the most important takeaway for me there is it's, it's not the importance of the decision that, that causes mental fatigue. You can make a bunch of totally irrelevant decisions, and you're still going to enter a state of mental fatigue, regardless of how important the quality of those decisions were. That's right. You can be made making decisions about, you know, what to wear and, uh, you know, when to schedule something on your calendar, you know, what, you know, what, what uh, flight you want to take to go across the country. Those are decisions that are not going to have a major effect on your life, but it still fatigues. It still wears out that, uh, that decision-making ability. So changing directions a little bit, um, you're a master practitioner of NLP, Tell me, how does NLP play into two awesome hours? 
Uh, well, so, you know, that's a, I guess a, a, a different arena. Um, the ways that it, that it, uh, probably influenced me when I was writing is that, uh, NLP for those people who don't know is, um, essentially a branch of psychotherapy that some people have adapted for other things as well. Um, but, uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, there were some linguists who studied some very successful psychotherapists and looked at the language patterns they used. Um, and then went around teaching those to psychotherapists and teaching, uh, as well what, what those, uh, original therapists were paying attention to in the language of their clients. Eventually they all also expanded it to nonverbal communication. Um, so those patterns that they were detecting were very successful. These were in the realms of hypnotherapy, of family therapy, and gestalt therapy primarily. Um, so it's a, a collection of, of um, sort of language patterns and nonverbal communication patterns that are associated with um, some, uh, some very successful psychotherapists. Uh, over time, people have adapted that to be relevant to marketing and coaching and various other things. Um, so I, for me, uh, what NLP is quite helpful with, with is in helping me to recognize uh, in myself and in others the ways that we're actually thinking about the work that we do. So if I hear someone talking about um, their, you know, how they just have to get to a certain project by a certain time, that kind of feeling of overwhelm. I know that it's a very different experience for them than if they're saying, well, I get to do this project or I want to do this project. So it helped me to really tune into some of the challenges that we're facing as well as some of the things that people are doing that are, that are successful. And those serve as hypotheses about um, what might be useful, how we might be able to set up the conditions for these brief periods of effectiveness so that when I then did go to the research, um, that could guide me towards things to start to look for. And then I might find, you know, you know, I the, so the hypotheses sometimes come from there. They would sometimes come from other places. Uh, and then I'd go to the research and, you know, if, if the research did back it up, then I would, you know, use that to color what I could say and, and try to bring that to, to the book. And if the research didn't back it up, then I would, uh, you know, leave it because <laughs> it wasn't a fruitful way to go. But so that's kind of how the pieces fit together for me. Awesome. And that was a great description of NLP. Thank you very much. That, that, uh, that was probably helpful for the audience. That, that relates a little bit to one of the topics you talk about is the idea of priming and how, I mean, obviously with NLP, it's kind of the language and the, and the nonverbals that, that prime you. But uh, you talk about physical spaces and how they can prime us. And I thought that was fascinating. Right. Yeah. So there's uh, three categories that I really focused on in the book that I chose because I wanted to just talk about things that anyone would would have some ability to influence that you know there's so many of us work in workspaces that we have no control over you know maybe it's an open plan office that we have no uh you know say over the color of the walls or the lighting or anything like that that's coming from overhead and you know the sound in the space can be tough um so I wanted to focus specifically on things that we do have some control over within that, that we could influence. And this is also relevant, of course, for anyone who does have complete control over their work environment or who works from home and uses part of a shared space you know, for, uh, for their work and partly for something else. Um, the categories are these, and one of them we talked about before, which is, which is sound, which is noise. 
that understanding the importance of it for concentration, um, I think can help go a long way in terms of people making decisions about when they really want to carve out that time. And here I like to, you know, I think it's useful to come back to this idea for a moment that we don't need to be on and at our best all day long, and we can't be. But what we can do is think about the work that really matters and then think about how can I set up a couple of hours, maybe just one hour, maybe three hours. Nothing magic about two. It's just that it's achievable for anyone. Um, you know, how can I set up a brief period of time to really get to that work? One of the things that will matter is silence. That'll make a big difference. What we can do is, because it really makes a difference, is that it, it actually is worth, if you can, you know, doing it in the morning before you go into work and going in a little bit later or, you know, uh, reserving a conference room for yourself if you can at your workspace. If you have the ability to shut a door, do it. Or actually getting some noise-canceling headphones so that you can put them on for that time period. And you could have music on at other times, but during that time you'd have it silent. So this is uh, speech, white noise, music, any of those things, they all have been shown to be worse. There's only a couple of exceptions. Um, some research, for example, with kids that have a lot of trouble paying attention seem to perform a little bit better at some tasks when there is some background white noise, that just sort of like nondescript, sounds like a fan. But for most people, they're having an easier time paying attention without the without. Um, noise and the hardest one to tune out is speech so you know if that's if that's you know if if there's no option um but to have either speech or white noise then yeah better with white noise but even better is silence and so you know for those periods when it really matters you'll you'll work more effectively you'll work more quickly um it'll be easier to to stay on task the second one is lighting um, now, you may not be able to influence the overhead lighting or whether you sit near a window, but one thing that has been shown is that bright lights make it easier for people to stay focused and that light on the blue end of the spectrum. So apparently we have photoreceptors in our eyes that, have, that are not part of vision. They were only discovered you know, within the last uh, 15 years. They, uh, they had been hypothesized before that, but we finally know about them now they've been identified they don't have to do with vision what they have to do with is resetting the circadian clock um, the part of the brain that that runs those 24-hour cycles those roughly daily cycles that we have about when we're hungry when we're alert when we're sleepy and light at the blue end of the spectrum the best example of that would be a clear blue sky Light at the blue end of the spectrum activates these photoreceptors and helps to reset the circadian clock. Um, so when we have access to that kind of light, cool light that you know there, you can look up uh, when you, when you go to the hardware store, it'll say whether it's cool light or whether it's warm light. Um, you know, it's not for everything. We want warm light is nice when you're having people over for dinner or you're just relaxing. But when you want to focus, cool light has been shown to be more effective. And even more effective at things like um, the kind of mental rotation work that engineers or designers have to do. Uh, they seem to be more effective at it with, with that light. So it really does make a difference. You can have a lamp at your desk that adds some additional light just for brightness or that where you get one of those bulbs that's on the more cool end of the spectrum. Don't have to have it on all the time, but when you, when you really need to focus, that's been shown to help. Um, as with sound, Dim lighting uh, also can 
can be helpful for creativity. So the, the one of the exceptions is creativity. And what matters is, is whether the environment primes the idea of being free from constraints. And that might happen with um, dim lighting. It might happen with having a little noise in the background. It might happen by being near a window or being mountain nature. But if that idea is primed, people tend to be more creative. So that's, that's sort of a caveat, an exception. But for the most part with the work we're trying to do, um, it's helpful to have the bright light. And then the third piece uh, with the environment has to do with the, the space that you are sitting at or standing at. Um, and there's a, 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 you know, a couple of things that matter here. One of them is clutter. Um, and, you know, it, for some people we can think, uh, well, you know, I can get my work done well enough without the clutter. I just don't have time to get to that. I've got to get down to work. Well, somebody once did a study about what we leave on our desks, what we leave stuff out. And for the most part, it's reminders. It's things that are meant to be reminders of something. And if you take a moment and kind of just think about what we would be reminding ourselves of, well, it's those things we didn't get to because they were hard or because it was unpleasant or because we didn't know how to do it. And then so because of that, they're probably going to continue to sit there, uh, you know, for a couple of days, maybe more. And then what gets added to it is this negative association, this embarrassment, I haven't gotten back to someone in a while, this social obligation. It's all the stuff that our attention systems are so well attuned to, very important for us, things that pertain to social obligations, things that have weight, things that have some that are threatening in some way because we don't know how to do them, but they're still tending, right? They are exactly what you don't want to expose your attention system to when you're sitting down to really do some work some that you've already chosen is what's worth spending your time on. You could work at a cluttered desk when you're doing the unimportant stuff. But when you're sitting down to have a really good period, it's worth it just to stack those things up and move it out of sight. What that also does, and this is the final thing I'll say on it, is that it creates the opportunity to move more freely at your desk, to spread out, to have big, expansive movements, um, to reach for that cup of water on the far end of the desk or for your phone on the other end of the desk. And when we have bigger, more expansive movement, that activates, primes the idea of power, especially in Western cultures, um, these bigger, expansive movements. And that can put a person in a more optimistic space and in a more, uh, more comfortable taking risks, um, that kind of a space. Um, there's even some research to suggest that it can influence our hormone levels um, and put us in a more resilient um, hormonal space. Uh, so, you know, so the consequences of that, uh, there's also then you can think about your workspace in terms of movement in, in the sense of how easy is it to get up and walk away to step back for a minute and clear your head, or to switch from a standing to a sitting desk. Not everybody has that capacity, but the ability at least to stand up and walk away, that that's going to create greater opportunities for mind-wandering and for making use of your decision points. So those are some of the ways that I think some of the, the ways that, that the environment can prime our thinking and therefore get us into a space to be really effective that I think anyone has some influence over. I think it's really funny. There's a quote, uh, you've probably heard it. I think it's Einstein that said, um, if a cluttered desk is a sign of a cluttered mind, what's the sign of an empty desk? Something like that. (laughs) 
which, uh, which nice. people use, of course, to kind of defend their messiness. But it's, you know, of course, you can't really argue with what the research says at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is a very full mind, a mind full of things that you have to keep track of when you're trying to to work on something. You know, it, I think so. I think you have a very full mind when you've got lots of things and we want to actually clear that out exactly. for the sake of the work. Just temporarily. Um, so for people like me who've read and enjoyed Two Awesome Hours, uh, what further books or resources would you suggest checking out? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, there are a few authors um, who endorse my book on the back cover who um, I, I strongly recommend their work. Um, you'll see uh, um, Heidi Grant Halverson. She's written a number of books. Her most recent is No One Understands You which uh, is a dive into the science and practice of, of recognizing how, not just how to communicate well, but also how, what, you know, what it is that we do that we're not aware of about the ways that we communicate and the messages we give off without even meaning to and how to correct that. Um, uh, David Rock was also one of the people who endorsed my book, uh, Your Brain at Work. Um, you know, if you like this, what you've read here, you'd probably love that. Uh, and then also Peter Bregman, um, the author of both 18 Minutes and Four Seconds, um, you know, really similar lines of thinking. Um, you know, for people who like to, you mentioned the book, um, The Art of Learning, um, you know, that space, there's a work also I'd recommend by Art Markman, um, who's at the University of Austin, Texas primarily, and has authored a couple of books uh, that are essentially are teaching people how to think. Um, how to how to um, how to learn so that they're more likely to have um, smart solutions to to new things that come their way. Um, there's a lot of great stuff out there right now. There's um, there's also a book coming, um, but it's not out yet. Uh, but keep an eye out for a book by Jamil Zaki Z A K I. Um, when, and I don't have the title to be able to give you just yet, but there's, uh, those are, those are some of the things that I would recommend. Um, also you can see my stuff. Uh, I write periodically blog posts, uh, that you'll see on the Harvard business review or uh, Huffington post. It's like today. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you want to take a look at, uh, what's in two awesome hours, there's also an excerpt, uh, available on the website for it two awesome yeah, so where can people find you in the book online? So the easiest way to do it, it's um, twoawesomehours.com. You'll find links there to contact me. Um, you'll find links there. Uh, you'll find excerpts there. You'll find links to the various bookstores, ways to buy it, amazon.com, which you could go there directly, of course, too, Barnes & Noble, all of the other main sources of uh, ways to get it. I'll link to from there. Um, and you can contact me there, contact my publicist there, uh, and I'd love to hear from you. Um, so please, uh, stop by and visit the website, or if you already know you want it, then of course I can get it right away. It's also should be available in many bookstores in your area. And that's two T-W-O, not the T-W-O. Oh yes. Thank you. Yeah. T-W-O, two awesome hours. Perfect. Uh, well, Josh, thank you so much for being on the science of success. I know people are going to love this interview. Um, you know, I think everyone should absolutely check out Josh's new book, two awesome hours, science-based strategies to harness your best time and get your most productive and important work done. 
I think everyone will really enjoy that book. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. One, two, Three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.